10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. What happens when you take a redneck fishing guide and pair him up with a master beekeeper? Well, we're about to find out. Join our host Ken Milam and John Swan as they help you brave the sting of beekeeping to reap the sweet rewards. This is The Hive Jive. Well, hello everybody. Welcome back to The Hive Jive and your first official main segment episode for 2021 welcome to our third season ken somehow we're still here <laughs> yep one more day one more year one more year one more year no, god man i'm here many more years i'm taking things one hour at a time at this point <laughs> i understand <laughs> yeah um so uh Everybody out there, you know, you you have all been eagerly awaiting the arrival of this first episode, and we greatly appreciate that. And our apologies that uh, mm-hmm. our hiatus lasted longer than normal. Um, mm-hmm. For anybody who is tuning into this podcast for the very first time and you have no idea who the hell we are, why we're here, or what we're doing, um, this is the Hive Jive. We talk about bees, among other things, but primarily honeybees. honeybees. Yeah, yeah, primarily honeybees. And if you are just getting started in beekeeping and you would like to learn more, please, by all means, if you want to finish this episode, go for it. But otherwise, go back to the very beginning of the podcast, season one. Those first episodes in season one, well, the entire season of season one, will walk you through every concept that you need to get started in beekeeping one step at a time, one day at a time. You will follow along with Ken and myself as Ken gets started on this journey and learns all the little key components to get up off the ground and get going and take you up to your very first winter with your bees. So again, if you're just tuning in for the first time, welcome, howdy, hello, thank you for joining us. Now go listen to the beginning where you should. Um, <laughs> and, and no, 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 but now I, I did something I didn't, uh, well, I bought a, a package of bees I know I'm not supposed to do that, but I did because I'm, I just decided I'm going to buy a package of bees and do them like a swarm, feed the fool out of them and put a pollen patty or two in there and see what happens. I'll put, uh, this open feed pollen out to them and see if I can make that bunch grow like a swarm as big and as fast as a swarm would. Okay. So I'm looking at my sound effects and there's not one that says audible eye roll. Um, the only thing I can find <laughs> are crows. <laughs> so yes, no, uh, yeah. it is, it is funny that you you mentioned that, and it's not going to be a surprise to anybody who has listened to this show for any amount of time whatsoever that Ken is buying more bees. Um, In fact, I bought hey. two more damn packages, not just one. Oh, see, now there we go. That's true, true to fashion right there for Mr. Ken. Um, hey, what do you think about if I do this? Oh, well, by the way, I already did it twice. Yeah, I already did um, it. I'm going to do it anyway. Yeah, do it anyway. So... <laughs> Yeah, I'm just going to leave that lay there for now and uh, I'm going to I'm going to move over here to something else. Um so for everybody else out there, we we do normally take a hiatus every year. We usually um 
kind of stop production in mid-December. And we take about a month off through mid-January. And we use that time to kind of spend the holidays with our families and recoup and come up with the show ideas for the next season. And we usually start recording and try to get those back out there about mid-January. And as all of you can tell, that did not happen this year. And we had anticipated our first episode coming out on February 1st, and that did not happen either. And, uh, you know, we've had listeners sending us messages and comments on social media. We've been getting emails. Are you guys still there? Oh, my God, is everything okay? What happened? Where did my favorite show go? And we truly, truly, truly appreciate that. Um, And I would like to give my apology for those of you who have been listening to us on Patreon, which, again, for anybody who is not aware... The Hive Jive lives in two separate places. We are here on your favorite podcast app, wherever you have happened to find us. And every Monday, there is a new episode that comes out and they are free of charge for you to listen to, to get information, infotainment, and education. And that is how that shall be. But the Hive Jive also lives on Patreon. And Patreon is a place where creators, be them musicians, artists, you name it, whatever type of creator they are, they can go out there and have a space where they can put out their content and they can put out exclusive content for their fan base and for their patrons. And anybody who would like to support that creator, or in this case, support the show, can then subscribe to Patreon and they can choose different tiers of support and they get different benefits and perks for that. So for those of you who are on Patreon, you have heard little little hints here and there of things. And, and Ken and I have kind of skirted around some of the subjects and stuff. But in, uh, in the effort of full disclosure, so that everybody understands why everything um, completely fell off the rails all of a sudden, my family and I had applied and got qualified and certified to be a foster family and to be a foster home. We have the space, we have the money, we have the love to give to help these kids have a better life and and be able to have some semblance of normalcy in their life. And so we decided to do that. And we went on that journey last year. And that whole process started started about last summer. And we were officially certified right towards the tail end of the third quarter, beginning of the fourth quarter of the year. So um, right around the October-ish, September, October mark. And we did not actually receive our first placement of kids, though, until right about the holidays. So, okay. all that aside. <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, uh, oh, Super Bowl's this Saturday, this Sunday. Uh, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah. I know it was yesterday. Well, yeah. <laughs> it's been a it's been a little while since we've done this so yeah there there is some little time loops and time travel that happens when you're doing podcasting and you're recording segments and chunks here and there and trying to tie things together across you know space and time because you can't physically be in person at the moment um but yeah so technically the super bowl happened yesterday congratulations if your team won <laughs> somebody yeah um but so let's see what else has happened. Um, <laughs> the the uh, groundhog of Elon Musk, didn't see uh, his shadow. <laughs> one of yeah yeah. Well, I saw that hill. too. It was snowing straight down, and it was cloudy as hell. And he did he did yeah he saw his shadow because only reason he saw his shadow is because they have TV lights. Hell yeah yeah they were like and he saw his shadow and I'm like dude. It's gray, it's cloudy, it's dark, it's <laughs> yeah. snowing. There's it's no snowing. shadow anywhere except for what's yeah. being 
in like basically illuminated by your lights from your camera crew. Let's see. Here in Texas, we had Lampasas Louie. He saw a shadow. <laughs> well, here in Texas, it was not, sunny. <laughs> yeah, there's not a cloud in the sky. And then there's Blanco Bob. And I don't know what any of them are. Are they road runners or I armadillas? No or I don't know. There was then, there was some fuzzy little white poodle that was on news that you know was one of the weatherman's dogs, and and he was doing his first prediction. I saw my shadow, and I was like, oh my god. Anyhow, so winter may or may not be another six weeks because apparently yeah. even the groundhog only has a forty some odd percent chance of getting it right. Well. <laughs> In fact, I don't think with what they're saying now, it's going to be warmer. You know, I thought we were going to get that, that, uh, bad norther coming in straight out of Canada, but it's going to come down and it looks like it's going to get to about the panhandle and then go east. And we're not going to even get any of the, we might get a little bit of wind change and that's about it. But they're talking like we're in the seventies next week too. Yeah, I mean, I think we've got one day where we're going to drop down and it's going to be 50. maybe 50 for the high, maybe freezing for the low. But mm-hmm. um, but for the most part, we are we are headed into our spring and uh, and that's just kind of that's how it is. Um, I forgot to yep. mention at the very beginning of this episode, too, that this episode is titled Invasive. And, uh, you know, we, yeah, yeah, we've talked about, you know, how my life was invaded. Uh, I had some invasive energy that was not anticipated and definitely had repercussions that we were not, uh, anticipating. Um, but invasive species in general, uh, are all over the place. Well, yeah. I mean, it's called Europeans. We, we came to the, to us and we ran, you know, we started pushing the, uh, the uh native americans out so are we invasive uh basically yeah 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 we we basically are what are what are some so so non um non-invasive non no i was gonna say non things that will get us in trouble for various reasons can you name other things uh i got uh guaga mussels zebra mussels salt willa salt cedar uh, what else we got? We have uh, a giant Salvinia. Uh, we have, uh, oh, a Vitex. Uh, oh, there's a pile of them. Well, what about, uh, you know, the main subject matter of the show? Oh, honeybees. Yeah. Honeybees are, are, they've been here, you know, they were brought here in the 1400s. Well, people think, well, honeybees have been here forever. Well, they've been here since the 1400s, but yeah, uh, they're not, not native. Forever. They're not native to the United States. They and they are yeah. they're an invasive species. So all of those things that you mentioned, they all have some of them have more mm, negative outcomes than they have positive. Yeah. But some of them have positive things as well, and it really just kind of depends on how you look at it. So you named off a whole slew of stuff, and one of them was zebra mussels, and that. Mm-hmm. That is something that here in Texas, especially we've dealt with over the past couple of years where for those of you who don't have any idea what the heck that is, zebra mussel is a kind of a striped clam of sorts. And it, the size of your fingernail, your thumbnail. That's yeah, they're not, they're not very big, but their shells are extremely sharp and they build in massive clusters and they cover everything and they spread through the natural fresh waterways 
they can get up into boat engines and jet ski engines and they can be mm-hmm. in that water and then therefore spread into other waterways whenever that fisherman or, or you know, outdoor enthusiast goes and takes that equipment to another lake if they haven't drained those reserve tanks out. Mm-hmm. And it, it causes quite a problem. It actually, yeah. at one point, shut down the water system here in Austin. And yeah. they had to clean out the entire water treatment facility because the zebra mussels got in there. And uh, so there's, they can definitely be a problem. And in some regards, uh, you know, there's a lot of plants too, like you mentioned a few things in there, but there's a lot of plants that are considered an invasive species as well. And some of those plants are, well, like any plant, for instance, most homeowners look at anything that is not a green blade of grass as a weed and must be eradicated. And that's obviously bad for our honeybees. It's bad for native pollinators. It's just a bad all the way around. And what they don't realize is it's very much the same adage as one person's junk is another man's treasure kind of thing. And mm-hmm. one person's weed in reality is a wildflower of some sort. And all of those things do produce blooms of various types and they are attractive to very specific sets of pollinators. And you can have people on both sides of the fence. Even the honeybee itself has people on both sides of the fence. You've got people that are 100%, you know, the advocate of the honeybee and they're the most amazing thing and we need to do everything we can to save them. And you've got the people who have built an entire industry around them and a livelihood around them. And you've got the agricultural community, which has come to rely and depend on them very, very heavily to pollinate all the crops because they are so efficient as a super organism and cohesive entity to go through and do those types of things. But on the flip side of it, there are just as many people that are not pro honeybee. They're an opponent of the honeybee because the honeybee being a native or non-native species, being an invasive species, has pushed out other native species because they overcompete for the food and they can compete for nest sites and things along those lines. And when you couple that with things like habitat loss, then everybody kind of loses. And one of the things that I've always said is, you know, even if the honeybee is the poster child for pollinator efforts and things, people that go out there and they plant and they do things to help the honeybees will be helping other native bees and other native pollinators as well. Just like if you go out and you do things to help the monarch butterfly, you will also be helping native bees and honeybees and other pollinators as well. So you have these pros and cons, right? Make sense? Mm-hmm. Well, one of these other little adages in here or these other little things, when we talked about like the plants, for instance, there is a tree here that is not native that is called the Chinese tallow. And I think you have one up there, don't you? Yeah, we have one. Uh-huh. Yeah. And the the Chinese tallow, you know, it was an import. It came over. It became very invasive, especially in moist, humid regions. So for us like in Texas, thicket. yeah, for us in Texas, they are really prolific around the Gulf Coast. Uh, away from there, like there are some people that have them as a decorative tree and things in their yards here around Austin and whatnot. And it's just one and it's not as bad. But when it has that really moist, humid environment, they do just, they spread and they take over. And when that happens, it does push out the native vegetation, which thereby pushes out the native inhabitants of that vegetation, things that live in it, things that feed on it, hide in it, all that kind of stuff goes away. And it switches up the ecosystem. Well, on the flip side of that though, the tallow tree is a huge nectar and pollen producer. And the, 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 tassels it's almost like a mesquite tree where it makes a fuzzy little caterpillar tassel 
And every one of the little fuzzy aspects of that tassel is a little tiny flower. And that tiny flower is a nectar reserve and it becomes a one-stop shop where one of these trees can have hundreds upon hundreds of tassels and every tassel has hundreds of flowers in it. So you have this mega stored surplus of nectar that the bees can go to and other native pollinators partake in that as well. And so from there, from that standpoint, the tallow tree has become very beneficial for pollinators and for honeybees and for people that their livelihood depends on honeybees. So your commercial beekeepers and your major bee breeders, queen breeders here in Texas, they rely on that. They rely on that flow from tallow to be able to build up their colonies, to get them as strong as they need to be as early as they need to be so that they can then go through and do these splits and raise these queens and have these big colonies to take on these migratory beekeeping trips. And, you know, they produce a ton of honey off of that as well. So all that being said, there is a flip side. There are the people out there that do not like the tallow tree. And because of its invasive status, there has been a big push over the past few years to find ways to eradicate it. And last year and the year before, they tried to kind of forcefully shove things in through the legislative sessions here in Texas to deal with that situation. And it all kind of got stopped and put aside. But here recently, all of a sudden out of nowhere, they kind of found a back door and they snuck themselves in through there. And when they did that, what they're doing is they're looking at releasing what is called the flea beetle. And the flea beetle is a natural predator. That's probably not the right way to say that. Um, <laughs> it's prime, eats, and that yeah. eats Chinese tallow trees. It, it's, it's, it's supposedly its only food source is Chinese tallow, and it will mm -hmm. kill the tree. And mm -hmm. so they want to release these flea beetles here in the United States so that they can go through and eradicate the Chinese tallow. And obviously that's going to be, that, that could cause some issues. And what's going to basically happen is once these are released and if they do what they're supposed to do, they will literally eradicate the Chinese tallow from the Gulf Coast. When mm -hmm. that happens, all of the pollinators that have come to depend on it are going to be out of a food supply. All of the individuals that have come to depend on it for their livelihoods, if they are beekeepers, honey producers, queen breeders, you name it, are going to be at a huge loss and it'll be detrimental to their livelihoods and their business, just like it's going to be detrimental to the native pollinators that are trying to deal with this, you know, loss of habitat already as it is. And now you're taking away a huge nectar producing source. And this source has been around long enough that, you know, the ecosystem has kind of evolved and adapted to handle it, but it is invasive. And just like for us, um, I kind of feel like I'm, I'm jumping all over the place here, but for us, the mesquite tree is an invasive plant. An invasive species. Yeah, it's an invasive plant and it has huge, very sharp thorns that will puncture tires on vehicles. Mm -hmm. And when they first are starting to come up, you know, they're the, the adult tree makes that fuzzy caterpillar bloom then it turns into a bean pod and the cattle will eat the bean pods and then they'll poop out the beans and a new tree grows and that new yep. baby tree has all these sharp little thorns and then you run over it with your yep. truck and it punctures the tire of the truck or the tractor you know you name it so a lot of the farmland you know they hate it they want to eradicate it but from the honeybee perspective at the right time of year man that mesquite tree is the only thing that blooms in the dead heat of summer when there's been no yep. moisture 
and it yep. is a huge nectar source and a huge food source for both honeybees and native pollinators. Mm-hmm. So it's the same concept. And there's there's got to be a balance and a give and a take. And uh, the other side of it, and you know, I'm going to say this kind of half jokingly, but half serious. Um, you know, we've learned both in reality and in TV shows such as like Jurassic Park mm. that quote unquote nature always finds a way. You know, and in that movie they went through and they did these they they took genetic things from different critters to put them together to re-engineer dinosaurs. And when they did, they purposely made the dinosaurs all female. That way that mm. they could not breed. And that might be the opposite. They may have been all male. Um so that no, they can't breed. Female. That's what they were. Well, one of the genetic things that they took was from a species of frog that has the ability to change its sex. And therefore, the dinosaurs mutated and evolved and changed their sex since how the entire population was one gender. And then they were able to breed and, you know, everything got out of control. Well, in reality, in real life, we've done that time and time and time again, where like recently they tried to eradicate mosquitoes or a specific species of mosquitoes. And they did it by genetically engineering the male to be sterile and then releasing tons of these sterile males out into the environment so that they would go through and attempt to mate with the females and the females would think that they'd been mated with so it completed their cycle, but they were sterile so nothing happened and there was no offspring. But what ended up occurring was that those males found the missing amino acid and protein chains that they needed to make themselves no longer sterile in certain bodies of water and manage to negate that. And so then you have this genetically modified creature who wasn't supposed to exist now is out there and is modifying itself so that it can continue to survive. And I say all that because then my next question, anytime I hear something like this is what happens when something like the flea beetle runs out of food? And has stopped eating cedar trees. Well, that would be different. Um, Nobody's going to want you to kill it if it goes to eating cedar trees. <laughs> right. Uh, no, but the they, point, <laughs> yeah, the, the, the point of that, though, is that we don't know what would occur afterwards. You know, the hope or the thought and the theory behind it is that, well, whenever all the tallow's gone, then the flea beetle will just die out and it'll be gone. No. But all it takes is one or two or three small little bugs that manage to adapt their diet to where they can survive on something else. And then they manage to reproduce. And that offspring now has the ability to survive on that other thing as well. And suddenly you've got another invasive species that is wreaking havoc on XYZ because we tried to do a good deed, because we tried to do something to stop something else, which is something that we started to begin with. And, and it is kind of a domino effect. Um, you know, our best efforts so, a lot of times end up in, in tragedy. So what we're talking about is this, <laughs> which goes this all the way thing. back to the thing I said at the beginning of the show. <laughs> no, no. So this thing, this flea beetle, uh, the Chinese tala are really abundant along the Texas Valley. Uh, which, uh, oh, by the way, that's where the oranges and the grapefruit and tangerines are all grown. So the Texas flea or this, this flea beetle, uh, all of a sudden it eats all of the, uh, the, uh, Chinese tala. And then it says, what else is there to eat? Oh, look at those little green trees over there. What if they taste good? Oh yeah, that's good. So they start eating on the oranges and the grapefruit and the tangerines and I'll stop there. 
<laughs> yeah, well, for those of you who are in the state of Texas, if you would like to look into this, the organization that is pushing this forward uh, to try to do the release of the flea beetle is, I believe it's an acronym, and it's A-P-H-I-S. And they are the ones that are currently out there doing it. Now, there is a comment period that has been opened up, and it's only open for 15 days. And at the time of this recording, we are recording this on the 3rd of February. You are listening mm-hmm. to this at the earliest on the 8th of February. So mm-hmm. there's probably only a couple of days left. But if you do some searches online for uh, Texas tallow and flea beetle, you will probably be able to find the the petitions and stuff out there. If you would like to send in a letter, you can definitely do that. Send them to your congressman, your representatives, and you can go through and find. I think there is a comment section and petition that is online. Unfortunately, the information I have on it mentions them, but does not conveniently give the link to where they are. Otherwise, I would be more than happy to give it to you guys. But I just wanted to to put that out there and you know say that these are some of the things that everybody needs to pay attention to. It doesn't matter what state you live in, what country you live in, where you're at in the world. There is always stuff going on behind the scenes and stuff going on like undercurrents. And if you are not aware of your situation and your surroundings, if you just go down the road and you're blissfully ignorant of whatever's happening, then sometimes these things can sneak up on you and you may have had an opportunity to have your voice be heard and potentially stop it because this thing has been stopped three years in a row. And, you know, this year, if it sneaks in under the radar, they may be able to get by with it. And if they do and somebody wasn't paying attention and that was their livelihood and then all of a sudden all of your tallow trees start dying and you're like, what the hell? This is why it is so, so important to always be mindful of what is going on in the world around you and how it may affect you and your livelihood and your bees. Um, so I just I just wanted to bring that up and thought that it would be good to share with everybody. And this is a great example of some of the topics that we will be tackling this season on the Hive Jive. We will also go through and we will talk about really advanced level beekeeping aspects, things that are on the peripheral of your normal day-to-day types of routines. And we will have some really great interviews with some amazing individuals who are way smarter than I am, uh, researchers and scientists who have gone through and spent their entire life dedicated to finding out different aspects of bees and beekeeping. And we'll also talk a little bit about some specific non-honeybee species and learn some more about those as well. And of course, again, for those of you on Patreon who have been following along with some of those bonus episodes, uh, you have heard that we are talking about adding some individual segments inside of our normal show. And one of those, Ken, is going to mm-hmm. be Ken's Cooking Corner. And uh, he's going to go through. I'm he tell you how to cook it. Yeah, cook it. Cook it all. Um, <laughs> he loves to cook about as much as he loves to eat. And he what? has... it's how it's supposed to work right i like to eat so i like to cook and i like to experiment i mean people say well what's the recipe you cook till it tastes good (laughs) you add stuff till it tastes good and uh, right now i'm starting to play with uh, vanilla making vanilla extract so next thing, you know, John, he makes the coffee. No, you make the jalapeno infused honey. Dude, I'm you are make a, from day one. 
you have been obsessed with me doing a coffee honey and you still Freudian oh, slip there. Kai, still I have tried not to done do one it. yet. Nope. I've done one yet. We had a listener though that did it and we never heard no more about it. Man, I, I can't even tell you what happened yesterday at this point, let alone season one and part of season two. So, uh, but the, the concept of the Ken's cooking corner would be, you know, Ken's going to go out there and he's going to find honey specific recipes and things that can be done. And uh, it's right up his alley because anytime we've done different interviews with some individuals and if they get off on food, he lights up, you can see it, his wheels start turning. Mm. It doesn't matter if it's a sauce or a rub or if it's a new type of thing. You know, his brain's like, oh, I could take this and combine it with that and do this. And so he's going to experiment each month with a different honey themed or honey related recipe or item. And uh, and then somewhere around the third or fourth week of the month on uh, on the third or fourth Mondays of that month, we'll have a little 15 or 20 minute Ken's corner, Ken's cooking corner segment where he can go through and uh, and share with everybody so they can partake in his honey madness when it comes to food. Uh, and the first one we're going to talk about is put a little bit of honey and a little warm water with a little lemon juice and a whole lot of bourbon. Then y'all they can make a hot toddy. We'll talk about it. Hell yeah. Well, you know, I mean, that's uh maybe that is just the, the appetizer. They talk, they do that while you talk about your other recipe. <laughs> no work. And, uh, and then we'll even, we'll even going to come up with a way of making buckwheat honey, make something out of buckwheat honey besides medicine. Oh, good luck there, buddy. <laughs> I wish you the best. Cause that I got a two gross. pound tub of it. I got to use for something. So yeah. yeah. So in addition to Ken's cooking corner, we are also going to be doing a natural beekeeping segment and we are very, very, very excited to bring this to everybody. Uh, every month, the first Monday of every month, we are going to have a special segment dedicated just to natural beekeeping. And it is headed by one of our biggest fans. And we are her, one of her biggest fans. She is a great friend of mine. Miss Natalie will be here to talk to us about how to be mindful and how to do bee centric beekeeping and how to do natural beekeeping. So joining us now to give us just a quick overview, Ken, say hi to Miss Natalie. Hey, Natalie, how's the world been treating you, ma'am? Hey, guys. Uh, well, the world is treating me all right, uh, except I'm not treating the world or in my bees. <laughs> <laughs> well, that is true. And that, that's where that natural uh, approach and aspect comes into play. So, see, great. Right off the bat, we've already started with our natural beekeeping. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I am super happy to be here with you guys to talk about natural beekeeping and um, to provide tricks and helpful uh, hints about how to do that um, sustainably in a sustainable way. That is awesome. And I think that our listeners will, will really enjoy this because it, it gives a different aspect. The, the whole point of the show, especially that first season, we didn't really go super in depth on one specific approach or aspect. We gave all the possibilities and then we allow the beekeeper to go through and make those decisions. But along the way, you know, certain individuals out there will be like, Oh, but man, I, I really want to know what, you know, bees being allowed to draw their own natural comb would be like, or I really want to know what bee centric beekeeping would be like. And, you know, utilizing these natural approaches. And so, 
That is what you and Les do at Be Mindful. It's all natural beekeeping and all the way to go through and do that. And I thought it would be really cool if we incorporate all of that into the hive jive and have it be this reoccurring thing. So much like what we did in that first season where every month there's kind of a specific set of things that a beekeeper would need to tackle or compensate for. Well, now we can have that natural counterpoint to it this year going through our third season and we can hear the natural side of how you would approach those in a completely bee-centric, bee-mindful way. Right. And uh, I'm so grateful that I've gotten to learn from Les Crowder. He's the expert. And together, he and I, we've been uh, doing natural beekeeping. We have never used treatments in the last 30-something years combined. And uh, we want to teach the world how to do that. Um, actually, a lot of beekeepers keep their bees without treating in any way, shape, or form. And uh, there's some things that are important to remember when you go down that route, the natural route. And we're here to kind of give you the information you need to be successful uh, in your natural beekeeping experience. And that is that is perfect. So right now, um, you know, we, we kind of had anticipated doing all of this. And I, I explained at the beginning, you know, how um, my life has been a shit show for the last two months. Um, <laughs> so... I, uh, which you're, you're fully aware of as well. So, um, yes, but I, you know, we, we intended on getting these things out there at the very beginning of January or the middle part of January. And so here we are now technically the second week into February and we still have a, a potential cold front that'll come through. We always, especially here in central Texas, we always mm -hmm. have one last hurrah that comes through the mid to late part of February, which can catch a lot of the colonies off guard and, but beyond that, is there anything specific? Because um, we'll we'll start our official segments. We'll start in March. It'll be that first Monday in March, and then every month going forward, that first Monday episode, we'll have our natural beekeeping segment in it. But for right now, why we got you here, um, is there anything off the top of your head that you can think of that you guys would uh, be advocating for? You know, the beekeepers to do at this moment, prepping. February heading into March. So yes, absolutely. There's one thing that I think is important when you're doing sustainable beekeeping at this time of the year is to make sure you're not artificially pushing your colonies to brood up too early. It's a, it's a dangerous uh, proposition because what can happen is especially if you feed pollen uh, supplements to your colonies and to a certain extent, if you start them on a regular sugar syrup um, to stimulate bird rearing, what happens is that once they've got a lot of um, brood in the colony and a cold spell comes in, they end up having to keep those that brood warm and they will basically eat themselves out of a house, uh, burn through their resources and potentially starve to death because of it. If that doesn't happen, uh, what can happen and they, if they manage to get that brood on the other side, they might end up, um, if you push them too much, they might end up swarming too early at a time when there's not enough drones or there's no drones whatsoever. And it's true of all climates coming out of the winter. It's not just true in central Texas, by the way. Um, but so when that happens, your old queen, your old queen, your existing queen made it, uh, the one that was laying all that brood is going to leave with a bunch of the bees and uh, leave you with queen cells but those virgin queens are either not going to find any drones to mate with, or they're going to be poorly mated. So it's a, it's a dangerous proposition and it should be left really to experienced beekeepers 
um, and uh, people that are doing something very specific, like commercial beekeepers, are trying to brood up for taking their bees to pollination contracts. For the backyard beekeepers and the, the people like you and I that are a smaller scale that are not necessarily trying to go for something specific, we recommend to not fall in, uh, feed any pollen supplements to start with. And um, if you are worried about your colony's uh, res- reserves of food, you can go and kind of take an, eva- uh, an evaluation on a hot day or warm day. Uh, and or if you've got lung stress, you can lift up the back of the hive and see how heavy they are. Uh, and if you think that the colonies are needing a little bit of a emergency feeding, which is the only feeding that we recommend as natural beekeepers is emergency feeding, you can provide them either with, if you have crystallized honey from your own hives, which is the best, or with uh, some sugar syrup, um, either two to one if you're really truly doing just emergency uh, to avoid introducing too much moisture. But if you're trying to go with the season and uh, do provide them a little bit of increased um, incentives, uh, one-to-one simple syrup. But you have to remember at that point that, that when you do that, uh, once you get started on feeding them uh, one-to-one syrup at the rate of no more than a quart, about a week, five to seven days, then you're kind of stuck with that treadmill on that treadmill, meaning you got to keep on providing them that amount of sugar syrup every week because they're going to rely on it. And if you cut them short, then you might end up also with issues where they've started with start, uh, brooding, rearing brood and they might end up with some starvation issues. So that's kind of our take on that. Yeah. And that's, that is absolutely par for the course. And that is for everybody doing beekeeping right now. Mm-hmm. Those are very sage words of wisdom because you did a counterpoint to, or the other half of what's kind of going on there. You know, you mentioned that if the colony is artificially stimulated and it swarms early, Mm-hmm. that you are losing your mated queen who is laying all the brood and that colony goes off and you do have the issues with, you know, your colony that was left behind will absolutely be able to raise a new queen. But what's going to happen is there's no drones for her to mate with. But on the other side of that, your colony that has been artificially stimulated that split and left, they're going out into a world that is actually a false reality because you mm-hmm. have tricked them into thinking that there's food sources available and they have now gone off into the wilderness where there's not a beekeeper there to continue artificially stimulating them. Mm-hmm. And they're going to find that there are no pollen sources. There are no nectar sources. And the only food that they have with them is what they took from that original colony. And they can build out a right. little bit of wax And then they're going to come to a screeching halt. And more than likely, they're going to end up starving out and dying because Mm -hmm. they were tricked into believing that the season was further along in the progression than it really was. Right. Especially if there's still some cold snaps coming through. We believe in uh, letting the bees follow the natural cycles of weather and forage of your area. And by um, artificially stimulating them by providing supplement feeding, that's not emergency. Emergency is something else. Emergency feeding is important and needs to be kept in mind because it's either that or the colony diet. However, right. uh, regular scheduled feeding is no longer emergency. And that's what we try to avoid so that our bees are better adapted to their local cycles of weather and forage. Absolutely. Absolutely. See, there you go, (laughs) folks, right there. Already off the bat, very, very crucial information for everybody to have from a natural beekeeping perspective that actually applies to all colonies. And (laughs) 
one of the things that is probably the biggest key of wisdom and one of the things that I often reiterate to a lot of our listeners whenever they send in questions is what would the bees normally have done or what would the bees normally do in that situation? If you're worried about what could X, Y, Z create, well then look at the flip side of it and say, but left to their own devices, what would this colony have done? And that will oftentimes lead you in the right direction. The bees know what they're doing. We need to trust them and try to not micromanage them. Um, Because usually what happens is that we introduce unintended consequences. And uh, it's better to kind of uh, try to follow their lead. How does it go? Uh, No good deed goes unpunished. That's right. (laughs) Unintended consequences are big with beekeeping. (laughs) That's, that's true. It's, it, it, you know, we've, we've learned that in so many different aspects of life in the world and in beekeeping itself, it is exactly the same way. We were talking earlier at the very beginning of this episode about, uh, well, the, this whole episode title was invasive and we were talking about, you know, different types of invasive species and how the honeybee is technically an invasive species for here in the United States right. and, you know, the, the pros and cons of that and how there's people on both sides of that fence. And ultimately the discussion led over to the tallow trees, the Chinese tallow, mm-hmm. and how right now there is current push going forward for them to release the flea beetle, which mm-hmm. feeds specifically on the tallow trees to destroy the tallow trees. But you now have this situation where the the tallow did push out a lot of the native species of plant life, which then pushes out a lot of the native species of animal and insect life, mm-hmm. but that tallow has been there long enough now that it is dependent or other things are dependent on the tallow. Right. And if you go through and you eradicate it, you have now taken out a food source that is crucial to the pollinators, both honeybees and native pollinators alike, but it's also a crucial part of the beekeeping industry here for the state of Texas. Right. And so you've got advocates on both sides of that that are saying, well, we need to get this done and we need to take it out of there. And the question that I posed to Ken was, You know, a lot of times we, and and I'm going to repeat it, even though y'all just heard this just a minute ago, but (laughs) we learn from movies like Jurassic Park, you know, and it's kind of funny because it's true in certain ways, but nature always finds a way. And you bring in this insect, you put it in here, it feeds on the tallow trees, the tallow trees are all gone. What is the likelihood that that insect does not evolve and adapt to then feed on something else? And now we have introduced another invasive species that has unintended consequences, even though we were trying just to do a good deed, quote unquote. Right. And, and uh, that's why we all need to stay mindful of the interrelationships of our environment. And it's the same with a superorganism, right? Whatever you introduce that doesn't belong there might end up triggering issues that tr- cascade down the road. It might not happen instantly, but it might accumulate over time. And even if the beekeeper doesn't physically observe the consequences, that doesn't mean they're not happening because there's so little that we are understanding still about the superorganism and how the entire um, relationships and microbiota and all this good stuff um, is interacting that we shouldn't assume that our actions don't have consequences. So we always, we always recommend to intervene the least amount possible while still being a good steward of your bees because you're, you're keeping them in boxes. Yeah, absolutely. Well, awesome. Well, I will uh, let you get on with your day. I do know that you have Mm -hmm. a busy schedule coming up because you have 
you just did your first inspections yesterday. The yeah. sun is out. It's warming <laughs> up and there's lots of beekeeping prep and activity to do. And we don't want to, uh, to hold you up from that. But again, thank you so much for agreeing to join us and to bring all of our listeners this wisdom and this mindful bee centric version of natural beekeeping so that they can learn other methods and ways um, to kind of add to their beekeeping toolbox and their arsenal of how to approach different situations. I think that is going to be amazing. I am honored and I'm so excited and I can't wait to share the tools that we have in our toolbox to help uh, everyone try to keep their bees as naturally as possible. So thank you for having me. Again, thank you so much for joining us. It is a super huge pleasure to have you part of the Hive Jive team. We are so looking forward to it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you, Natalie. We appreciate it. I mean, uh, you make me and John look real good. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, She's better looking than both of us. So I'm just going to say that and leave it there. Um, <laughs> anyhow, so those are some things that you guys have to look forward to this year on the Hive Jive Thank you so much for sticking with us, for tuning in. We will absolutely be back next Monday with another full episode of the Hive Jive. But until then, everybody, be good. Y'all keep the shiny, the, the shiny side up, the rubber side down, and y'all be good. And thank you so very much and stay healthy, family. The show might be over for now, but the sting won't last long. And if you haven't already, be sure to subscribe to our podcast as we'll be swarming in with new episodes Mondays of each month. Until then, behave yourselves. <laughs> I don't know where I was going. <laughs> <sighs> All right, we're done. <laughs> <laughs>